This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Hailing from Tupelo, my next guest, Keith Francis, is a multi-talented multimedia artist, writer, publisher, and teacher. He's founder and operator of Hoopsnake Press in Tupelo. His art is nationally and internationally recognized. With his work shown in over 30 international collections, including the Getty Museum, it's no wonder why he's here today. And he's also going to be discussing his 2023 Governor's Arts Award for Excellence in Visual Arts, his noteworthy career, current projects, and of course, hailing from Tupelo, Mississippi. Man, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. And I've about decided that you are who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> well, Marshall, I don't know. You've got quite an interesting career going on there, too, as a cartoonist. I mean, right now, you, I don't know that there's more ever been more fodder for cartoons than there currently is being produced. So you must be in, in heaven with that. But, yes, I, I'm pleased that you think I have a good life. I do, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it would be a good way to start out the show. You know, he has a good life. I have a good life. I do. I mean, I've I've worked hard, and I will continue to work hard. I get up in the morning about 4 o'clock and write from 4 to about 7 and have breakfast and go out in the studio and work to 5 and then come in and take care of whatever business has developed during the day and cook some dinner and maybe read a novel at night till I fall asleep. So it's a pretty steady pretty steady work. When I when I was down there at the, the, uh, the Governor's Award of very nice young woman came with her tape recorder and said, uh, "You know, do you do you have any advice for young artists and to, that how they might end up with some recognition?" I said, "Well, you know, if you if you work like me, get up in the morning at four o'clock and you work to five o'clock in the afternoon and you you work for fifty seven years, somebody might give you an award, you know." <laughs> it does happen. It really does. It's not I, the getting up at four o'clock and I do the same thing. And, and yeah. I, get, I get up and I go for a little walk just to kind of get my head straight. And then right. then I do some writing and I do some because honestly, and I don't know what it is about creativity, but I seem to work better up until. But and I like to actually do the drawing in the afternoon because the drawing, you know, I don't know about you. I can just throw on music or whatever and I don't I can turn my brain off because the drawing is more yeah. muscle memory. But the creativity right. seems to come better in the morning. And I used to be totally opposite of that. Uh, because of my schedule, and it was really hard switching it. But I love that. I love that time in the morning when it's quiet. Yeah, Buckminster Fuller said that the the electricity from all the people's brain waves was low in the morning at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, and that prevented interruption. I don't know if I'd go along with that, but it was a good theory. (laughs) No, that sounds great. I mean, you know, with caffeine, of course, you can get the electricity going pretty well, but – yeah, yeah I, I do a lot of that. I mean, I'm a strong believer in coffee. 
No, uh, it's just everybody in my house is asleep, so I can actually get work done. That's I think that's my theory. Yeah, it, I think that's part of the picture. You you are there uninterrupted. So you're but up. Then in- I come on out to the studio and and you know get started on the day. There's usually the day before I line out what I'm going to do before eleven o'clock the next morning, so that it's it's sort of all scheduled and I don't have to think about too much before eleven. That way, I just have to carry out projects that were lined out in the shop. Well, that's what I was going to, I was going to ask you about that because like I said, just even going through your career and from, you know, the sixties to today, there's, there's obviously a huge left brain component to go along with the right brain component. And, and that's fascinating that you plan out your morning that you know what you're going to do because uh, people always think that just the muse just happens, but in a way you almost have to tell the muse what to do uh, before, before she shows up. Well, I mean, I I think if you've done it as long as we have, and I've known you a while, I mean, there's a lot of interviews in our past, but I I think among the things that I would say about all of that is that the one thing you you realize is, you know, if you come in with a task at hand, it gets you going without, it, it connects that left left brain, you know, in a way that actual physical work connects it in a way that thought doesn't. And and if you can kind of come in and get your hands moving and things working on the press or you work, start on a painting or you start on something that's physical, you make an object. I mean, I think that you begin work on an object of some sort. And that, then I think that begins quickly to make that shift from the intuitive subconscious to to the work, you know. And I, I, that's important, I think. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck in a right brain bottom line cash flow yes oh yeah well, yeah i'm hungry i need to eat yeah that, that thing right. Right. it's so distracting right it's true you know it's true and I, you were talking about the work that i've done over the years different work I, there was a there's a a uh, online magazine called canvas rebel and they had done an interview with me and I you know like on these interviews sometimes you say things you didn't know you knew but I, one of the things I that kind of came up in that whole process was the idea of sort of working intuitively and how many different uh, divisions of, of the work I have been involved with you know uh, it's nearly all been visual, but there's a large component of poetry and writing, which I've done my whole life. You know, I mean, I thought of, I thought artists were painters were from France, sculptors were from Italy and writers were from Mississippi. I mean, that was my growing up. That was what I thought. So I, I, I guess early on, I thought probably I would approach it as a, a writer, but it turned out that the, my talents in the visual arts, my eyes were the strongest component. So, you know, when I write, I write really from visual, from the visual element first. I usually make an make an image or a painting, a print or something, and then the stories evolve from that. Not the reverse. I'm not an illustrator. You know, uh, I, the work comes more from an intuitive left brain uh, component. But one of the things I had said on that interview was that. I have, you know, I have worked in the in collections as a photographer. I've worked in collections as a painter. Worked in collections as a sculptor, book arts, the whole thing. But uh, I, I, I told we were talking about the excellence in visual art 
governor's award. And I said, well, you know, the only thing that probably saves me from being listed as a dilettante is that there are these awards and things that I've won that have the term excellence attached to them. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you know, I mean, we live in such a, a... a culture that's defined by Fordism, you know, the assembly line thinking, yeah. that, you know, a person can only do one thing. I mean, it's impossible for them to do more than one thing. Uh, and you do one thing and you do it till you drop over dead. Well, you know, I, when I became an artist, I, I did that because it was the, it was the most poorly defined profession in the world. I mean, and still is. I mean, it's probably a different definition for artists, but according to however many artists there are in the world, you know. Uh, but I think, thinking about it, I, I realized early on that the many things that interested me, and I think I'm driven more by curiosity than the desire for fame or attention. You know, I'm driven just by basic curiosity. Uh I think one of the things that I realized was if I wanted to sort of have free reign of that curiosity and let it take me where wherever it led, uh, an art art career was a great career because you know I could move comfortably between sculptor, photographer, you know, painter, printmaker, writer, whatever, and it all somehow fit under that that category and. Uh, under that heading, and so I've been very lucky that way. I think I haven't been sort of pushed into a to a mold of any sort. I sort of been able to let it evolve in an intuitive fashion. Of course, now I come to sort of the final chapter in this thing, and that it's very interesting because I realize I've been sort of working on three specific bodies of work. They're multidisciplinary, but three specific bodies of work and uh, firmament, you know, the idea of heaven or the cosmos and their elements, paintings and prints and drawings and stories that go with that. And then Pangaea, which is the whole earth concept, the Greek concept of land and sea and the creatures that cover the surface of those and the subterranean aspects of things uh the underworld which is hades or absence of light <laughs> whether you're talking about enlightened light or you know actually physical sunlight uh that the world you know my work is really divided into those three different areas and that's not unusual as it turns out you know i think people like william blake and some people great writers, printmakers, uh, were on to that idea several hundred years ago. But, you know, it was interesting because I didn't come to that in an an organized search fashion. I just have been compiling work and looking at 57 years of of images, you know, from uh, and writings, and and that's how it shakes out. So that's a pretty interesting yeah, no, I mean, and I'm not dyslexic, Key. I'm just saying this because you're my guest today and I want to be nice to my guest or whatever. I mean, you're you're literally talking to somebody who's about 15, 20 years behind you on this journey and on this path. And, you know, it, and, you know, and like I said, we've we've spoken before. I've admired sure. your work before. Um, in fact, I, I thought of you yesterday, your image, sto- your 
you're painting storm over Mississippi as the storm came right. blowing in, you know, right. I mean, and so I was like, oh, that looks like one of Key's paintings, actually. Um, but like I said, the way that you have approached your career and, you know, I'm I'm like I said, editorial cartooning and newspapers. And, you know, I mean, I can tell you all the kinds of things about change, but the change is nothing to be afraid of. It's just, you know, honestly, being able to do the work and be able to create and be able to use this this gift that you've been given that I've been given. But the way that you've done it and the way that you've structured it and the way that you've used that gift in so many different ways is very inspirational. And, and like I said, I was very excited when I found out I was going to be talking to you. And frankly, I was very thrilled when you won the Governor's Arts Award. And my, my second thought was, what's well, about time? Um, you know, because well, thank you for that. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you've been doing this a long time, but you've done it in a way that, like you said, it's just born out of curiosity. It's not out of, oh, look at me, look at me, which is how I've done mine, you know, because that's all, I mean, that's literally how I became a cartoonist. I, you know, like in grade school, I'd sit there and draw a picture of the teacher, you know, with um, boogers coming out of her nose or whatever. And, and look at this, look at this. And then I became an editorial cartoonist. But that same pot, that same creativity, you've done that so well. And so, that's like I said, I, I, I'm just enjoying this chance to be able to hear you talk about it a little bit. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, there are many, you know, I think many muses that drive artists. I mean, everybody's into it to serve some function and to, to fit into their life in some way. And, you know, I, I had a group of artists that decided when I when I left the University of Central Florida after teaching there for a while and decided to move to Tupelo because I was moving to Tupelo and hang out up here. And, and that worked out fine because I gave them a couple of years to get their portfolios together before they all went off to grad school and are, are becoming successes in the world. So that's great. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think really I've, I've been lucky that way because – I've been given opportunities, you know, uh, people have given me the opportunity to do, to pr- pursue the work. And, and, uh, that, that's an, an important part of the picture. I think people have to have some kind of faith that you will come through. Yes. <laughs> oh no, no, I agree. That you'll produce and come through. And, you know, I, I think that doing doing the work and doing the work consistently and working hard at it and allowing one thing to lead you to the next thing. Sometimes it's frustrating because getting started in any discipline is is time consuming and and a lot of failure in the early phases of it and you have to be willing to sort of put up with that failure, I think. Yeah, and it takes a lot of courage to do that, too. It really does, to be able to say, okay, I'm good at this, and I'm going to try something new, and it's totally different than what... And I, and I mean, like I said, that that makes all the difference. And folks, i got to tell you, if you want to become an artist or you're interested in creativity, uh, you're getting a master class today. I hope you're enjoying this. So, Keith, we'll send you a bill on this. Or no, I, you send us a bill. Never mind. Never mind. Send you a bill, okay. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. I, I didn't agree to that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry, it's Monday. The caffeine's just now kicking in on that sort of thing. Um, I like I said, you know, the one thing, like I said, you you started out in it, and you kind of grew into different areas, and 
you kind of attacked the business part of art. And I think a lot of artists don't understand that they have to get pretty good at that part of it to be able to survive and function and eat. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you go from saying, okay, yeah, I really enjoy doing sculpture. I really enjoy doing, you know, my printmaking. I really enjoy doing this to actually to being able to make a living and to eat. Well, one of the things I thought it was interesting is to understand, you know, in, in high school, my 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 grades, my best grades were chemistry and physics and advanced math. And during the summer, I, I've worked for a, a, a chicken packing company in Tupelo one time one summer before I became a senior. And I worked all of my chemistry and physics and advanced math books and staple the answers to each chapter in the back of the And when I went in my senior year, I gave my teachers those books, and they gave me an office in the gymnasium, and they gave me my college chemistry and physics and calculus books to study and said, you have to take the test, everything, because we can't just pass you based on your the work you did in the books. You have to take tests and all of the things the rest of the students do, but just come and go and do what you want to do your senior year and, and study, get ready for college. So that was the beginning of being uh, made an exception to the rule, I think, you know, and people have made exceptions for me all my life. I, and I don't know quite why that's the case, but that is in fact the case. Uh, but it's because I work hard, you know, and I, the thing I, I learned when I went, to Mississippi State and uh, and took chemistry from Clyde Q. Sheely, who the guy who invented the liner for beer cans and got a patent off of that and lived on that very comfortably, uh, was that one of the things that I learned was that um, people who move between disciplines are the people who do the most creative work in a discipline. Yeah. Because because they come from one field and they bring a body of knowledge from that field into the into the new field and apply that information in a way nobody's applied it before. And I, I understood quickly then that there were, I had a lot of talents, uh, you know, uh, and and that if I was going to live in a small town, I mean, I started out teaching at the Cleveland Art Institute. I was offered a permanent job there in Ohio, Cleveland Art Institute. But, but I, I taught there for two years and then, moved back to Mississippi and built a studio here in 1970 and worked from 70 to 96 just as a working artist and making a living on the work. And I, and the way I did that was, of course, if you're in a, a small town, the demand for it's pretty low. So I I tried to figure out how to – Tupelo actually is a great location for, for a young artist because if you draw a, a day's drive compass uh, circle around Tupelo – you take in Dallas, Fort Worth, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and New Orleans, and and if you find a gallery in each of those places, you can you can uh, set, then do a show every 18 months in those locations. Then you'll be pretty well fixed uh, if you sell well, you know, or or you have strong representation. It takes a while, maybe three years, for artists to to sort of get known in an area. And if the gallery is willing to front you for three years, putting on shows while they build a market, I mean they'll make money, but they won't make as much as after three years. But but I I, I figured that out pretty quickly, 
you know, I mean, I figured it out economically how to make that work. And and so I, I was on the road a lot. I mean, one year I drove, I think, 60-something thousand miles. Wow. Uh, in my in a beat up old Ford van called Van Gogh. <laughs> <laughs> you better hope uh, it goes. Yeah, it better be better go. I carry toolboxes. I tell you that. But uh, you know, I uh, doing shows in L.A. and uh, San Francisco and and uh, a lot of places around too. You know, and I, I was on the road, and then I was lecturing a lot at colleges and universities trying to figure out um, you know how to how to, to to show the work consistently even if it wasn't showing in a commercial gallery during those periods of time when it wasn't showing in a commercial gallery how to keep the work moving so you know it's it's a lot of travel but it was exciting fun fun life I, and I taught workshops in Belgium and uh, Germany and Scotland and later on in Scotland, uh, and I, I traveled a bit, and and uh, you know my experience was quickly broadened. Uh, just going off to college, you know, I went to I went to Mississippi State first, and then the University of Memphis, then Memphis College of Art, and then the Cleveland Art Institute. And all, and during the summers, I studied at the Cape School of Art, Cape Cod. Uh, so uh, by the time I was probably 25, I, I had traveled quite a bit and had spent time in other places, taught at some schools. And when I moved back to Mississippi, I already had, I had a, a working relationship with a, quite a large number of professional artists. And I, I took a lot of tips from them, I guarantee you. And I, I've been lucky in that regard. I've, I've, shown and worked with, you know, the best artists of my generation. And, uh, and that, that's been a real pleasure. I mean, that may be the greatest pleasure of the, of, of the whole experience is uh, the people you work with and the creative people and their way of looking at the world. Um, that's I, literally, I, I mean, literally, it's, I'm not kidding you, Key. That's literally how I learned how to become an editorial cartoonist, was going to the conventions, meeting the cartoonists, getting to see their, and not just seeing their works in, like, books, seeing the originals yeah, and seeing their right. mistakes, you know, yeah, learning. That's you know, important. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really important to see, you know, how the process and, and learning right. the process on that. And, I mean, I've got a 90-year-old mentor. Actually, he's 94 now that I can call up today and ask him questions on that. So, I mean, just that's hearing. Right. Yeah, hearing you say that, and also too, I'm, I'm number one Scotland. Yeah, I'm envious of you on that one. But getting to paint out at Cape Cod because f- folks who've never been out there, that's probably some of the best light in the world. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, their sunrises and everything are just incredible out there. So it's, it's a really pretty place. And also too, I was going to commend you. You're kind of the anti Elvis. You were born in Memphis and you moved to Tupelo. That's pretty cool. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, that, it is a funny idea. Yeah, I was yeah. born in Memphis, and that, that was during the war. And a lot of the doctors were off at war, and and uh, I had family. Uh, my my family had family in Memphis, in the place they could stay free so they went up and and sort of waited on my birth up there and enjoyed the family and you uh, said thank you thank you very much right yeah uh, that's what i said yes <laughs> uh, you know and then, then i entered the building here in tupelo <laughs> 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 but uh yeah memphis was a good it was a, was a 
an interesting place when I grew up, uh, and and it was interesting to go to school there uh, during the period of time when I did at the Memphis College of Arts. That's closed now. I mean, private private schools or art schools are pretty hard hit. Yeah. Know? I mean, I I, I think uh, things have changed a lot since since those days. Well, I mean, arts arts been hit. I mean, you think about what now they're talking about AI, but I mean, just you know basically yeah. it's 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 a tough it's a tough gig you know it can be but at the end of the day if you've got like you said the relationships the personality and, and you hate to say this and i cringe a little bit but the brand then obviously you know you're going to have fans and people are going to want to see your work because at the end of the day art isn't you know the technique or whatever it's it's actually the the artist and what they bring right. to the table and, and you've got like i said you've had so much experience from many different things that your artwork, it shows up in your work. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I will say this, that one of the problems I've had over the years with, is, has been, although you know I've had some great galleries, and I, I currently have a great one with Marcy Fisher but, and Kim Karen, but, but I, I will say that one of the problems of, of trying to find new galleries when you're un, not well-known in a region is people look for people are either artists are either building columns, generally building columns of work. They start out and they do a particular kind of thing. They're a landscape painter, they're a figurative painter, or still life painter, or something. Say they're painters, and and then they they paint more complex still lifes, and they paint better still lifes, and they build that to to they have a recognizable brand to use your term mm-hmm. uh, they have a recognizable brand and and then that brand is easily marketed and advertised and photographed and you know put put reproduced in art in America and art news whatever and people see it and they want to want to have something with that branding on it and if you are a person who this month are working on uh, sculpture, and six months from now, you're painting, and six months from now, you're making woodcut yeah. plants. Then that's a very difficult thing to brand, and and because it it depends on uh, not form, but it depends on content. Right. You have to understand a, a unified content. And I, we were laughing about the tornado pieces and yes, earlier in the conversation, but I, I did a show at, at Brooks after, probably in the early 80s, uh, Brooks Museum in Memphis. And the show, it looked like maybe it was a collaborative effort between seven different artists. I mean, I was doing so many different things, and each of them had a different look to it. That it was hard. I was doing sculpture that looked like one a different. One person was doing sculpture, and one person was doing painting, and one person was making prints. But there wasn't any common theme. And I decided then, you know, it was kind of a schizophrenic idea. I decided then maybe I better get this team together and coordinate on a on an idea. And I and I realized that I was uh, sort of on top of a really interesting thing, which was all of these tall tales and stories and things based on tornadoes and because it's you know it's, it's they're like the paul bunyan stories of the south 
you know, people have their pants turned around backwards and their cast iron wash pots turned inside out with the legs on the inside and all kinds of fantastic <laughs> mythical stories they have about tornadoes. And I, I realized then if I, if I just interviewed people, went out and photographed tornadoes, did the paintings of the myths of tornadoes, prints from the paintings, sculpture of tornado imagery, uh, that I would have a, a theme that would unite the work, yeah. and that would that would be the brand, and that's that worked for a while till I got bored with that. Well, then there's that, that. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean I totally get that. It's, it's like, and I do that. I, I look back and I see stuff I've done. I was like, and I get really excited because for me, if I get excited about, it, then I suddenly lose total, and I get into flow, right? And, and you know, which is amazing. And for anybody who's not an artist, flow is like when you lose track of time, and you know, it, it's really incredible. Key, you do a little bit of everything, and you do it all very well, which is a lot harder than than really than. Um, you'll probably give yourself credit for, but it is not easy. You know, I'm going to jump back to like the first segment. You were talking about you writing. And, you know, I was told early on I couldn't write. So I didn't write for 20 something years. And then one day I decided, oh, yeah, I'm, I need to eat. So I came, I started writing short stories and did a book and it did okay. But when I write, and I loved hearing about your process because I visual, it's just the same process as when I paint or when I draw, I see a picture and then I just try to describe it. And whether it's painting or if it's pen or it's words, it's all this. It all comes from the same pot. So for you, with this creativity that you've got, you're you're just picturing it in your head, and you're just trying to basically translate it down to whatever media you're working on. Correct? Yeah, that's right. I think uh, you know the first thing is the visual image. Yeah, and uh, and then words and and media in whatever media follow that. The one thing I found that's been really interesting with the books, and I, I approach publication in much the same way that I've approached every other aspect of the work. I mean, if I'm starting out to make a sculpture, I don't hire somebody to cut the steel and then have to hire somebody to weld it and all that. I, I just start from scratch, and I I cut the metal with a torch and weld the pieces together and build a form and construct a base and the whole thing. And it's just a product of my invention. Uh, and I approach writing that way. I just, I'm working on a, a small essay right now about uh, the name of it is Priority of Content, but it's a short, maybe 15 page essay. And, uh, I, I, I dedicated the book to those writers who write, illustrate, d- design, print, and bind their own books. I mean, how many yeah. of those do you know, right? I right. Mean, not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot right? No, aren't many. <laughs> so so I, I think to do that, you have to limit the production. Otherwise, you, spend, you could spend your whole life doing a, you know, a, a John Grisham size edition, uh, but you know to limit to limit the books to edition of maybe two hundred something like that and bind them yourself. No, it's it's a it's a, a a large project, but and it requires quite a range of skills, but not so many. If you you know, I'm not trying to know how to do every kind of binding in the world. I just do the kind of binding that will make a very strong, very beautiful book. And that's 
that's all I ask of binding. Uh, and to point to that and point out what's interesting about the books to me is that I'm, it, it allows me to do quite a, quite a lot of things. One is that it, it includes as illustrations, since the, often the stories start from the paintings, the, the images that are generated by the paintings are the illustrations. Then there's the text that I write. Uh, and those, that's two things right away that are, that combine to show two different aspects of what I do. Then often there'll be a supportive photograph in the introduction, uh, maybe in the process, there'll be some, some sculpture piece that fits the theme and, it's photographed and drawn or etched and and it appears in the book and and so it's possible to have a book of mine and have a reference to everything I've ever done i mean you know there the my point being about the quantity is that my thinking through on books has more to do with placing these books in really good collections yeah so that so that they are available to research people and to people who want to come and read them and look at them and take notes from them so they they end up in books like Sterling Memorial Library at Yale or the Van Pelt Dietrich collection in Philadelphia or you know the Gutenberg collection in South Africa, or and, and they uh, Getty, okay, all right. But they're they're available. I, d- I don't have to print a lot of books to make those books accessible to a lot of people, and th- so they're online through those often through those museums or the the libraries. And if I if I print an edition of a hundred and I, this, a number of people get buy them for their special collections, their personal collections, then often, you know, if they if their kids are not interested in art, then they leave those to museums and, and they the work spreads out and it's possible for a museum I mean, it would be almost impossible, say so a painting of mine is ten feet by twenty five feet long or a sculpture is thirteen feet tall, weighs four tons. Okay, that 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 gets to be a real problem for a museum. I mean, they have to maintain it. They have to find a place to store it. it has to be air conditioned, climate controlled storage. It's possible to take a to to have a shelf of my books, and to have images, writings, poems, uh, images of my my fo- photography, a portfolio of photographs, uh, all in this one shelf of a bookcase. At, at a at a major museum, in in the special collections wing of a of a museum or or library, so I'm more concerned. I'm not as interested in finding a trade publisher to to print two million copies of my stories and images. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't spend any energy trying to do that. Uh, I mean, I have everything I need here. I have the bindery. I have five presses, uh, you know, have all of the plate-making equipment to process photographs, to process my engravings, to print my etchings. I have a complete studio, a print-making and painting studio, a sculpture studio. So I can make the complete work and distribute it 
where it will eventually find a home and be available to the public. And if I can do that and still make a living, and that's gotten, well, that's all, I've always sold enough. I, I've always sold four out of, uh, one out of every five pieces. Four out of five pieces were, it may, might end up in a donation to a museum or here, here in my inventory or whatever. They continue to show, but they're too big for people's homes or, or whatever. But they're, they're uh, major works. Uh, but the books are a different story. So the reason I've devoted quite a bit of energy the last 15 or 20 years to the books is it's allowed me, one, to work uh, to combine all of the medium and which mediums that I work with. And it's also allowed me to do collaborative work with other artists and poets and writers who I greatly admire. Uh, I mean, I've worked with some of the best poets C.B. Wright from Arkansas was a genius, MacArthur Fellow, uh, Forrest Gander, uh, who's just won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, all these people are people I've worked with. And I've done the images for their books, their poems and things. Uh, I mean, the list is pretty long of the artists that I've, I've worked with as a, where I've submitted a component of that. And in some cases, I printed their books in small editions, and they've gone into special collections that were interested in their work, but then they found out about my work through owning a CD right piece. Or, or uh, my, and recently, Michael Hammond from California. I mean, you know, and he donated his work to a major archive in California, a university there, and and you know, the result is that there's. An, an increased interest in my work from California <laughs> because of Michael Hammond, this book I just finished with Michael Hammond. I, I did the illustrations and and I printed it. Michael wrote the poetry and we just made an edition of 200 books. Uh, and interestingly, I didn't read his poetry and then make the images. I had images already from the Tornado series that fit his poems called Idiot Wind. And I had done the, the images 12 years before he wrote the poem, but they went beautifully together in the book. Uh, and, and so interesting things like that happen as a result of publications and of mass production and multiple production, you know. Uh, it's possible to get the work out to an audience, to a concerned audience, you know, I mean, I, like I say, it's it's hard to it would be uh, it, it would be hard I think for a, a gallery to represent every aspect of my work uh, and and be comfortable about that. But uh, it's it's a different a different market. But yeah. the art market is different. The book market is different than the art market. I mean, the people that that read. Uh, have a have a, quite a different perspective on collection collections than than people who are visually building visual art collections. That's look, just not observation. Yeah, I mean, no, I I think that's that's very solid. And and I just look back at your career about you know when you went to Florida and you worked down there for so many years, and every step along the way, it's like you have prepared for this moment now. So it's like. Right. For any artist who's listening, they need to understand that whatever season you're in and the work that you're doing is probably preparing you for the next 
big thing. And, and I'll tell you a quick example for me. I, I had the chance because, you know, I'm a middle-aged dad, right? So right. I like World War II. That's just kind of a natural thing. And, right. I, and I always loved drawing airplanes as a kid. And now, you know, because of my iPad, I can paint pretty easily on that because I like painting acrylic. But I, mean, I can right. paint on the iPad pretty quickly. So I started painting airplanes. And so I interviewed two World War II authors and I painted the airplanes from their books. Well, one of, them, right. one of them's now interested in doing a graphic novel based on his Pulitzer finalist book that, um, based on uh, the Doolittle Raid. And so, uh-huh. you know, so I mean, that's probably going to be a shift, and I'll get to do that down the road. So you never – as an artist, and it sounds like just your career, the big part of it is always be open to whatever the universe or the good Lord gives you and then just attack it with joy and as much effort as you can, and you never know where it's going to lead you. Does that make well, that sound about I right? Agree with that. Yeah, yeah, you're 100 percent right on. You know, when I went to the University of Florida, I mean the University of Central Florida. I, when I went down there, I went down there to, to be director of their fine art press, and yeah. I did that. I did that for two years successfully. We built a, a membership that that was self-sustaining uh, for the press, and then the result of that was that uh, it was became apparent that. I could write contracts with that that would go through legal with no changes and because of 26 years <laughs> yeah. of business experience and that I could balance a budget. And and I quickly realized if I wanted to expand the press operation, I needed to be in charge of, of how the finances were dispersed. So I, I became chair of the art department for four years. And then I, because of the grants and the things that I had facilitated, I became the dean of research. So I, when I left there, I, I stepped down from the dean role pretty quickly and became the gallery director and, and called. And then I, I continued to operate my own mess. Because part of my arrangement with them was that they gave me a facility, an air-conditioned building for my, my, my presses and my my presses were used to publish university fine art works uh, that in for their flying horse editions press, and so it was a collaborative, a, a profitable collaborative venture. I mean, moving back to Tupelo took twelve trucks. But. <laughs> 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 but but, uh, you know, I, I moved back to the same place where I was located from 1970 to 1996. Yeah. Brought the presses in, plugged them into the wall where, where they were plugged before, and went back to work here quickly, back into business, you know. Your daughter's daughter. part of it, too, isn't she? She is, yeah. yeah. She's, she's, she actually owns the land. I, I mean, I own adjacent land to it, but yeah. she, owns, she owns the land where the press building is. Oh, you can't you can't send you can't ground her or anything like that because she owns the property. That's 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 no. Well, I'm, I'm we're far enough along since I'm a great grandfather now. <laughs> we're far enough along. Yeah, I'm about to say you don't have to worry about sending her home without her supper. So yeah, no, no, no. I, my my having to run her, ride her on kids is you know a thing of the past pretty much. Uh, but it, it has been has been great being back in Mississippi and Tupelo. I mean, I. It, it's where I grew up, played football. You know, maybe that I'm probably remembered more for that than being an artist. <laughs> Is that hilarious? But anyway, I, it's Mississippi, it's, actually. So it's no, Mississippi, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And that's across the state. I mean, everybody knows about that. Oh, I just literally just finished illustrating a book uh, that'll come out this fall that I drew 47 high school football stadiums. I painted them for it. Wow, and, that's yeah. great. And it was just so much, it was such a fun project. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was like this, A, I get to travel the state, but also too, it's like what people really care about. So it'll be a good thing. I tell you yeah. what, we got, a, we got a couple more minutes before we got to scoot. Number one, I need to get up to Tupelo. I would love to see... If that's okay, just see your studio. Yeah. I would, I would, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, I think I've learned more about what I'm going to do for the next 20 years in this last hour. And I apologize to the audience if, if, it, if, if I didn't ask all the right questions. But I mean, I'm totally fascinated on how you have structured and handled your career, and I really admire it. And, and I just wanted to say that. But also, too, what's also great is that you're not thinking about the past. You're thinking about what you're going to do today and what you're going to do tomorrow. And so you're still you're still a working artist and you're still doing great work and your work's as good as it's ever been. And I think that's something to admire also. Well, you know, the Governor's Award, I, the one thing I'll say in, that I was proud of in the Governor's Award, that Visual Arts Award, is uh it was based on current work. I mean, it was based on an exhibition that I did at, uh, at the Max Museum of uh, an installation related to a book and sculpture and, and, and prints. And then there was a show at the Books Museum in Memphis that showed a rotating show of 25 of my books and a show at the Montgomery Museum in, in Alabama of, of prints and books from their special collections that they've works they've purchased over 40 years. Uh, and 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 part of the Brooke show. So so what was you know what's going on? And, and that award was based on current work and current exhibitions. And I, and you know I, I guess I lucky so far knock on wood. I guess my my family. My grandmother lived to be 102. My mom 96. I, you know at at 77 I'm sort of late middle age. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know i'm in good health right now and cranking on i mean i talking this morning about a show in new york and doing some things getting things going and uh julian rankin and i were talking about projects we might could work on with books and with walter anderson and the relationship that walter anderson and i share having both been writers and printmakers and painters uh something interesting they develop out of that but it's all forward looking okay well that's just our next show okay so you just yeah you just laid out our next show right there so (laughs) okay it's great well it's been great pleasure talking to you i've enjoyed this yeah i've enjoyed this always good Good. It, it is. I like I said. I'm a fan, um, not only like some of your work, but of the process too. And and that's always fascinating. Uh, website, real quick. We got like a minute, so um, you can throw that out there. Yeah. Well, website is there's a hoopsnakepress.com, uh, which has books and paintings and stuff, which I I just canceled, but it'll stay up for a while till my money runs out. But then there's keyfrancisart.com, which okay. is, is, is a new and going up. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna send that out on my social so folks can follow it too. You'll be able to find it there. Keith, this is great, and like I said, thank you for taking an hour out of your creative time to uh, to talk to us today. This has been wonderful. Yeah, it's been great, great fun. And I hope you don't have to draw any more tornado pictures today. Yeah, me too. Right. I, I was I was worried last night there was some rotation up this way, but it it didn't end up. It blew some trees over, but. Yeah, I, I did a bunch of drawings in Rolling Fork, and um, 
you know, yeah, I, right. you know, between that and Katrina, I mean, I think you know, it's 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 you so sobering. Know. Yeah, it's very sobering. It really is, and you kind of hope it, it ever works. happens again. Well, thank you, and congratulations again. Marshall, great talking to you. All right. All right. Well, folks, I, like I said, I, I hope you um, enjoyed this because Lord knows I did. This was uh, a great episode for me just to learn as an artist, and I hope you learned something too as well. And I want to thank you for listening, and a special thanks to our guest, Keith Francis, for joining us today. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast, and that's on your favorite podcast app or our MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio uh, with episode and podcast produced by the wonderful Jermaine Flood. And join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. I'm Marshall Ramsey, and I hope you all have a great week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 